0: Welcome, adventurer, to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey Adventurer! Oh wait, welcome! I just oh. wanted
1: to have a little fun there, that's all. It's oh, like it's a on. new year!
0: <laughs> Adventures, welcome to episode 82 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And this is Explorer Josh. And we're so happy to have you today. We've got Explorer Josh with us, and the slate is full. We're talking Seven Wonders Duel, Skull, plus our 8-bit breakdown is Ivy Studios' Mythic Mischief, we we'll gonna be taking our party on an adventure to the Academy with Archmage Andrew, who's going to learn us a little bit about Western legends and then stick around, because we're going to do a little chat about AI art and its use in the board game industry. Thanks for joining us, Adventure Scott. Josh, what's going on, fellas?
2: Just got back from a board game night. Got to play some, play some games. Which like, oh, playing? Got, got to try Quacks of Quedlingburg, actually, the first time I played that one. So mm-hmm. I got to get my hands on a little bit of a classic. Uh, cool, had a cool. great time with it. Also got to play lots of Sorcerer's Arena today, which was a lot of fun. Mm. Disney's Sorcerer's Arena. Getting ready for the the road to Gen Con for that, so that's going to be exciting. And I'll talk more about that probably near the end of the episode. But besides that, I'm doing great. The game store is great. Holidays are over. I'm eating leftovers. (laughs) Having a great time.
0: We had a little game day ourselves today, Scott. That
1: we did. We got a chance to get in a couple games. This is an odd one here. A couple games of of Wonderland's War. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, set it all back up again, drew out different characters and played it again. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about that in a couple episodes here. And I know we're going to have a lot to
0: say about it. Two in one sitting is extremely rare for us. And you know what? I think I'm probably the biggest offender because I'll play a game and I'll be like, all right, let's switch it up. Let's switch it up. And I'll come back to one of those games two days later or a week later. But man, I love like just okay let's play something different let's play something different i don't know why
1: it's called being a short it. attention span that's what it is you sure shush it, josh <laughs> he suffers from ados attention deficit
0: oh shiny
2: actually it's it's actually adok attention deficit oh kickstarter
0: <laughs> very good <Very> oh <laughs> you know what it was lately was uh a d o b n attention deficit oh barnes and noble You got to see, they had a mega sale the day, two days after Christmas, every board game, every one of them was half off. Did you get in on it?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Scott, I know you said you got Arc Nova for like 34 bucks. Yes, yes. I
1: I grabbed that. I got uh, a copy of Imperium Classics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also got Wingspan. I haven't had Wingspan and, uh, there was one other one I got. I can't quite remember off the top of my head what it was, but, uh, but yeah, I was really happy with it. Um, I didn't want to go completely crazy. Uh, I was about to pick up a couple dice thrones, but I was like, nah, nah, let's not do that. Let's just go with what we got.
0: So the story goes, I'm sitting there after Christmas, uh, uh, scrolling down the the, on BGG. They have one of the forums is Hot Deals. And uh, I'll check Hot Deals every now and then. And I just so happen to be looking at it the day after Christmas. And I saw somebody posted, hey, everything is half off. So, uh, well, this can't be true. So I made my way over to Barnes & Noble, and it was true. I'd messaged you, Scott, while I was there. Hey, by the way, every Barnes & Noble game, half off, picked up a a nice haul, probably five or six games, took them home, happy as a lark. And then on Facebook, it starts flooding all the board game groups, and everybody's putting pictures of their hauls up. Somebody had a picture of Fort, and I was like, oh, I I didn't didn't get Fort. They have that other section with all the little games, right, the smaller boxes. So Mm -hmm. on the 27th, I went back. <laughs> it was it was kind of funny because I was joking with Jibby, who's like, "Yeah, I know." My wife went. We picked up four games, and I was like, "You junkie, you're a junkie." Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> junkie I was about to pick up, up Root, junkie. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Um, hold on, talk.
0: Imperium Classics, I got gotcha. you, or Imperium Legends. You got one of the Imperiums. Oh, one of the uh, those little deck builders. not in front there. of his computer. Just let him do it. Let he's on. No, no. Way. Imperium Classics and. Tortuga
1: 1667. Oh, the, oh, the little you book. Game. Imperium Classics. Yes, yes. That's what it was. But <laughs> so uh, we'll but out. yeah, Imperium Classics looked really cool. I've been eyeing that one up for a while. My wife picked up Wingspan, so I'm going to get her to play that. Nice. So that was a good one there. Great game. But uh, I actually had someone contact me from the Renaissance Festival before you, saying, oh. hey, by the way, 50% oh. off.
0: And then they oh. showed me a picture later on. They had like Fourteen games. They went to three Barnes and Nobles. Oh man, I oh, tell gosh. you that one in Altoona has been a gold mine. I want to get out there. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, and for those of you that are not from southwestern Pennsylvania, Altoona is where uh, uh, Phil Connor. What is it? Phil Connors from Groundhog Day. Who was Bill Murray's character? Uh, you know, he's walking uh, up to the street. The guy's like Phil. Phil Connors. <laughs> uh, okay, that's he, they were trying to get to Altoona, but they got snowed in. That's neither here nor there. Everybody's putting a picture. No, they were trying halls, to get to Punxsutawney. But- no, they got to Punxsutawney, and then they were trying to get out of Punxsutawney, weren't they? Oh, okay.
3: It's yeah, been oh, good.
0: Get to Altoona. Okay, we, I'm watching it tomorrow. It's that's uh, we a board game just too. went completely off track.
2: Josh, don't well, try well, and
0: make this a board game podcast. Well,
2: well gra- <laughs> I mean, Groundhog Day <laughs> is a board game. It's like more of a card game, but that's neither here or there. But that sale was absolutely crazy. Like I was with you. Like I just get on Board Game Geek, and you know, you're seeing just people doing their their hall picks, spending you know. 200 to $250 worth of games. It was, yeah. it was insane. There were some good titles there too.
0: Well, then later on that day and into the next day is, is, I mean, you could not go on, if your Facebook's like mine and it's littered with just board game groups, it eventually turned into Barnes and Noble sale picture group. And then <laughs> people started getting salty about it. Like, oh you know, God. this isn't very great for the industry when this had like pe- people were, uh, you know what it is? They're jealous. They're junkies mm-hmm. and they couldn't get their fix.
2: It's – it's I have never seen people in a hobby yuck people's yum more than board gamers. They are just so negative sometimes. Like you see those people who don't get to buy a lot of board games all year because board games are pretty expensive. And they have a great deal. And so they spend their Christmas money, their Barnes & Noble gift card, and they get board games. And then Mr. Ho-Ho, I'm an independent publisher, comes along and is like, well, here's what actually happens. Later on, I'm seeing people who I know – own their own companies who are f- friends of mine who are in the industry with these publishers and they say hey our games are on sale go buy them <laughs> like
0: they want this to
2: happen <laughs> yeah i was i was talking with uh, i was looking at one friend of mine he has a he has a brand new company very popular designer and he said hey this game is now in barnes Noble and it's on sale please go buy it so to me that's indicator like these publishers aren't suffering i saw a comment I wouldn't be surprised if these companies go out, go out in business in the next two or three years. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure CGE, Capstone Games, you know Restoration Games, Asmodee are not going anywhere in the next one to two years. I'm sorry, it's, it was just people no. being being mean, being stinkers.
1: I mean, if anything, you look at it, the Barnes and Noble probably had a big uptick in their sales in board games. Well, I hear they do that this every say? year.
0: Like, they've always done it for hardback books, and this year they incorporated board games just to give it a try. That leads me to believe that they're going to do it again next year. So I opened a a Christmas club. uh,
1: I I had a comma there, but you just ran right through the comma. (laughs) I didn't know there was a comma. I thought there was a period. No. What it was was Barnes & Noble, they probably had a big uptick in sales, comma. Ah. So that would lead them to probably go out and purchase more games and even possibly expand on their board game area. So this is just making board games more accessible to more people that they might not know where uh, their local friendly game store is or anything, but they know Barnes Noble. So, let's go there. Barnes Noble had just upgraded their whole gaming area. So, there's going to be more games for sale there. They're going to buy more for all their branches. So, yeah, it's it's
0: not a bad thing.
2: It really isn't. I, I saw that Wait, same wait, wait.
0: Did he have, or is that a period or a comma? Period. Okay. Go ahead, John.
2: Beautiful. Well, I I saw a different argument. People were like, oh, this is ruining FLGS's sales after the holidays. You know,
0: I could buy comma. into that. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. I'm just, I just wanted to say before you continue, I could buy into that thought. Proceed.
2: So it's it's a good thought, but as someone who works at an FLGS, I can tell you that I am pretty confident it doesn't. So because a, a friendly local game store um, lives or dies by the community surrounding it. It's not about, you know, attracting people because uh, no matter how hard an FLGS works, it's not gonna attract the same the the same crowd as the Barnes and Nobles. It's not gonna be in the same places as Barnes and Nobles. So are you we pluralizing live mortalizing it. It's just Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. So oh God. <laughs> many Barnes and Nobly. Um and so I mean the people who are buying these games at Barnes and Noble, yeah, you'll get the hobbyists who are going straight to there. But All this – it's not going to take away too much from the business of friendly game stores because most of these people are selling out the gift – like, during the holiday season, it was like $20,000 worth of gift cards for our store. It was a lot. To me, it's just like – it's taking away business me for two days. But the rest of the year, those people who would love games are coming to our store because Barnes & Noble's, you know, is not going to stock them. It's not plural. (laughs) Barnes & Noble is not going to stock them. This I, I agree with Scott. This is going to be great for the hobby because Barnes & Noble are going to see this and say, hey, people like board games, and this is getting a lot of traction. People are talking about the Barnes & Nobles now. Maybe we need to stock more games. More games in popular stores is just better for the hobby, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I Fair think point. that people that go to the local game stores, they have that feeling of home whenever they go into the their local store that they know of. And they're there the other 11 months out of the year instead of just December. So they are going to have that continual going back and getting more games, getting more games, where Barnes Noble probably had an uptick for two weeks, and that's it. So I don't think it's going to really harm anybody over the long run.
2: Plus, you'll be surprised that most FLGSs, don't make their money on board games. They're making the no, money on Magic:
0: The Gathering. We are not surprised oh, by come that. On. Yeah.
2: Making, they you make, make don't more money. You <laughs> Make money on the Magic Gatherings, the TCGs. They make more. Most FLGSs make more money on Warhammer and war games and stuff like that. Board games are the lowest thing on the tier, which is why the lots most of FLGSs. Stores,
0: yeah. I would I would guess make more money on snacks and soda than they make on board games. <laughs>
2: No, I'm being serious. You you get uh,
0: 24 people in for a magic tournament and they each get uh, a snack and a soda. That's going to make more more profit margin than selling a board game that night. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. Guys, one more thing. Our friends from Dragon Dawn, they got in touch with me. First of all, we're gonna have a White Hat contest coming up. Uh well, we may or may not announce it on the podcast. We, you know, we try not to do contests on the show. But uh they have Perdition's Mouth, that big old dungeon crawler oh, yeah. coming back to Kickstarter at the end of the month. How cool.
1: about that? That's wonderful. I that that's gonna be really great to see.
0: Speaking of pretty awesome guys, we've got a big old slate of recent plays. Let's get on with it. Josh, you take the floor.
2: So this is a game I actually got at the Barnes & Noble sale. Um, this was Seven Wonders Duel. Um, I re- so yeah, classic, top 25. I think it is the highest rated two-player game in all of BGG. I've been looking at this game for a long time, wanting to play it because I love two-player games. And I've never played Seven Wonders by itself. I never had much interest because I don't get to play in large player counts too often. So okay. I had the opportunity to grab this at Barnes & Noble. And I was like, sweet, this is the one game I really want from here. That's what I came – I went to the Stale Forest to pick up that game.
0: All right. And we okay. sat down.
2: And I sat down and played it. And you know what? I see why it has that reputation. I think it absolutely deserves its spot in BGG. So in this game, what you're doing is you are playing different civilizations. And you're trying to become the most prevalent, the most you know benevolent civilization there is out there, either through a culture track, a science track, or a uh, military track. One of those three things. So the game has many different avenues to victory. And I really enjoyed the way the drafting worked. And two-player drafting is so hard nailed down. And I've always heard this game nails it. And it does. The way like you have a bunch of cards in front of you that are covering other cards. Some cards are flipped face down. Some are flipped face up. So there's opportunities for planning. But also the mystery of you don't know what's behind. It made for a really intriguing decision space that I quite enjoyed. It didn't outstay its welcome, which was awesome. I never felt like I was too far behind as I was playing. I felt like I could have been winning the entire game, and I didn't know until the very end if I had won or not, which was a great feeling for me. It kept me engaged the whole time, and really, it I felt like I could change my strategies mid-game and still catch up. Now, I ended up not winning, so it's probably not the best strategy, but <laughs> I like how the game really encourages players to explore and not mm-hmm. just stick with one strategy and go. Each strategy is just as legit as the other. Military might be a little harder to achieve than some, but I still felt like I had a chance to win it, and that feeling of having a chance to win using military still makes you want to try it again. Um, but that was my feelings on Seven Wonders Duel.
1: Yeah, the great thing with that is that you're saying about you try this way, you try this way. The game is short enough, it's easy to set it up again like, Let's do this again. I want to try something a little bit different. And the other mark of this here is that my wife loves this. She doesn't like many games. She loves Seven Wonders Duel. Oh,
2: yeah. So- <laughs> I can hear her in the microphone. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, those
0: who didn't hear that. <laughs> Seven Wonders Duel does a couple things very, very well. Uh one of which Josh, what you mentioned was the you know the card drafting, how you have say five cards to pick from, and behind these five, in between each, there's say four cards that are face down. And then after that, three cards that are face up. That's where Josh you were saying, you can pre-plan, you can see what's going to be available in yeah, two rows from now, but a card isn't available until it's entirely uncovered. So the card one row up that's on the far right, it is covered by two cards so there's a okay i could take this card but then my opponent has to take that one and if they take that one then i get this one so you're constantly there's like an interplay like oh if i take this then he has to take that which will unlock this one for me but in order to do that i have to do this there's a whole lot of that that thinking ahead that i like and i love that they do it all in uh, what we'll call a closed system. You're not going to have new cards introduced uh, from one game to the next. You're going to have the the same cards be them in various positions, but a closed system so you can get better at the game. I know that this card is in there and I know that I can target it. And if I can hit that card with this card, then that's going to give me a good push. And in science, for example, I like when games let you get better at as you become more familiar with what to expect.
2: Absolutely. And Seven Wonders Duels, Absolutely home run of a game. Amen to everything you guys said.
1: Well, imagine yourself on the last waning hours of twenty twenty two. You're sitting there and somehow you got relegated to entertaining the younger people that are at this New Year's Eve party. You love Welcome it. to my life. I always get stuck with entertaining the younger people at parties. So what I did was I pulled out a game for the four of us. That plays up to six people, and that game is Skull. Now, Skull came out in 2011, so it's kind of a uh, level back, but still, it's a great game. Skull is a bluffing game, if you will. This is another one that doesn't overstay its welcome because you need to get two points to win. That's it. Okay. How do you play So. What you do is you have basically uh coasters with absolutely gorgeous artwork on them of different flowers and those sugar skulls from Deo de los Muertes. so Muertes. Deo
0: de los Muertes. Lieutenant Murtaugh.
1: But uh you have three flowers and you have one skull. So what you do is you go around the table. And you take one of your coasters, put it face down in front of you. The next person does that. The next person does it. The next person does it. Comes back to you. I'm going to put down another skull on top of this. All right. Goes the next well, an- person. a, they put a coaster, right? It doesn't have to be a skull. It's just a Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm down. sorry. Put down a coaster. Goes the uh-huh. next person. They put a coaster. They put a coaster. They put a coaster. Comes back around the third time. You're looking at it. I think there's enough out there. You know what? I bet I could flip over two coasters without getting a skull. Next person could say, I could flip over three. Next person could say, I could flip over five. And then everyone's just like, you're crazy. What happens now is you have to flip over the skulls in front of you first. So if you got stuck with the, the winning bid and you put your skull down there,
0: yeah, yeah, you're kind of screwed. Well, you but, wouldn't get stuck um, with a winning bid because you wouldn't outbid so as to have to flip your own skull. Well, sometimes you want to
1: try and trick people into it and try and raise uh, that up a little bit. Okay, I see, so, you, I see what you lure mean. Lure them in. Yes, you want to lure them in there with <laughs> the idea of, oh, I didn't put a skull out. They're all flowers in front of me. I'm so confident I could flip over five. Well, if he's confident, I can flip over six. And then you sit there and grin and say, please, go ahead. So what happens is the player has to flip over all their coasters in front of them. The whole idea is you want to get all the flowers, no skulls. As you're going along here, you flip over yours in front of you, and then you pick out coasters from the other players and flip those over until you flip over the number you said you could flip. If you receive one of the skulls and you flip over one of their skulls, what happens then is they take one of your coasters away from you. You don't know what it is. So you take a look at it again and you see, oh, I have my skull left in two roses now. So you only have three coasters that you can play with. So your amount of playing shrinks and it gets a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter. So if people can figure out that you are stuck with fewer things and the skulls, they're going to try and lure you into flipping over your coasters so you get out of the game before everyone else. The best part of this is trash talking around the table. So imagine me, an adult, in quotes.
2: That's hard to do. With
1: the younger people, talking them into flipping the cards and just being an absolute shark. (laughs) and trying to make them make really bad decisions. It was wonderful. It was a great (laughs) game. You're a bad influence. But but yeah, Skull is a great little game. You can play this at a bar, at a coffee shop. I actually made up a homemade version of it and took it to the Renaissance Festival. And I would say, excuse me, would you like to play a game of uh, strategy and wit? Would you like to play a game of Skull. And we just drew them in there and we'd sit there and play that. And it was on little wooden discs, so everything looked like it was period. Great little game, beautiful artwork on every single component in this game. And you can find it relatively inexpensively. So I think it'd be like around twenty bucks or so on Amazon.
0: It's a solid game. It shouldn't be as fun as it is. You hear the description, you're like, uh, that sounds dumb. Yeah, that sounds dumb. Like a one trick pony. But it's surprisingly like it's one that's easy to come back to because it's so quick. It's so silly. Kind of like an icebreaker of a game. You know what? Yes. My go-to, my go-to like quick game is No Thanks. Uh, mm-hmm. I play that to like 150. I think I've played it at every single meetup that we've had. I do enjoy me some No Thanks, but it can go a little bit longer and it's a little bit more thinky. If I'm just playing with like non-gamers, casuals, or even gamers, but especially whenever I have people that I'm not so sure, man, it's a winner.
2: Yeah, Skull falls into that category of – for me, games that maybe I particularly don't enjoy, but I would still buy and own because I know lots of people would enjoy it. I played actually school last week, surprisingly oh. enough. And you know, it's not my jam. I'm I'm really bad at those bluffing <laughs> games type stuff, so it's not particularly my thing. But Really? Scott, <laughs> yeah. Wait, were you yeah.
0: one of the youngsters that Scott was entertaining <laughs> playing last
2: week? <laughs> Mr Scott said I could lie and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, it's not particularly uh, my thing. But you're saying like it's a one-trick pony. What makes the game fun for me is that playing that trick on multiple different people over and over yeah. again. Yep. So and watching them react because people have a very visceral reaction sometimes when they flip over on that. They have they bet five, they got four done, and so they see. They go to my coaster, which I know for a fact is a skull, I'm holding a straight face trying not to go,
0: <laughs>
2: little little gremlin <laughs> laugh, and they flip it over, and they freak out because they just lost, and I just, you know, are just, <laughs> just in my like, head, I'm just like partying, like, I got you!
1: Yeah, so skull is definitely a, a great one uh, for non-gamers, and if you have a bunch of people that are together, like, this plays up to six, so... People circle around you watching, wondering what's going on, and it's easy to get people in to play and everything afterwards. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's very, very simple to learn. Great little game. So that's Skull. Now, Patrick, I know you had to get something. You're constantly playing something. So what did you play?
0: So it turns out uh, uh, Nikki, who I think I've kind of explained this pretty thoroughly on the show, she has arguably the best board game collection in the tri-state area. And she's also very generous with games, lending them to close friends as they wish, so long as they teach them to her upon returning the game. Right? Pretty sweet right. deal.
3: Well, yeah, it yeah. was
0: New Year's Eve, Scott. You were entertaining the youngins, and uh, I know you didn't make it out. You were invited, but I, I went uh, to a little party in Nikki's basement. You know what? I wonder why it always... thought. Let me try that again. Nikki's basement. Okay, wait. <laughs> what? What if we... the basement of Nikki downstairs yep. at Nikki's house. Nikki's
2: basement. Wow. Nikki's basement
0: even from around here? Why is it doing it for you? It
2: just just has to... I I guess it's a thing.
0: Nevertheless, I found myself in Nikki's basement. And she had a like ritzy dress up a little bring in the new years and play board games and uh, played some games down there this one was not played that day but has since been played and it is all the hotness i'm gonna be returning and teaching to her flamecraft 2022 game uh, designed by manny vega and published by cardboard alchemy Thematically, the players are flame keepers who are like folks that can communicate with these charming artisan dragons who I've only ever heard of like artisan bread, but apparently it's a not just a bread type. Uh, Hmm. It's a
2: bustling business, business, artisan stuff.
0: Okay, so you don't play as bread. Uh, There are charming artisan dragons who are apparently not as destructive as their more commonly known cousins. Oh, oh, uh, fun fact. I almost forgot. Fun fact about dragons. Dragons are not real, which coincidentally, I have to point that as a fun fact, because my daughter's in the backseat of the car. She's like, Dad, when did dragons go extinct? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, my daughter's a smart girl. (laughs) It's when
2: you start playing Dragonheart for her and give her a great (laughs) education.
0: So the board game. This is a kind of worker placement, kind of engine building, definitely resource gathering game. Let's start with the board. It's long and skinny. Insert joke here. Kind of like Ark Nova, and it represents the town in which these artisan shops are running. Game starts with six shops around the board with several empty slots where new shops are going to be opened when the current ones get filled with dragons. The players each start with a few of these dragons and an end game scoring objective card. Gives you some direction as to what you want to do. Now, on your turn you take a dragon piece, your little meeple, which in Nikki's version of course is the plastic upgraded awesome piece. Oh, you but place of it in one of these shops and you have the option of either gathering or enchanting. Gather means you're going to get the resources shown on the shop, maybe add a dragon card from your hand, thus making it more plentiful in resources for future visits, not just for you, but everyone else. Enchanting means you're going to trade in some of your resources to buy an enchantment card, score some points, and put that card above the shop. Pretty easy. you got a market of five enchantments on the board. You can pay the cost listed on the item. You score the points on the card, slide it under that shop, and uh, you guess it, more production for you or anyone else who visits that shop moving forward. Now, I mentioned when you gather, you may place a dragon card from your hand into the shop that you're at, so long as you meet the criteria therein. There's three slots for dragons on each shop, and when they fill up, a new shop from the deck is placed onto the game board. It's effectively in play, and it does something different. It's kind of neat, because the starter shops, they're all kind of generic, but the shops that you can add from this big old stack, like, first of all, they're from a big stack, and you only add, like, six or eight, depending on the player count, uh, they're going to be different game to game. You're not always going to see this same handful, uh, and again, they do some things that are going to shake up play a little bit. Play continues until either the deck of dragons is empty or the deck of enchantments is empty, at which point you get extra points for objective cards, leftover resources, etc., and the high score wins.
1: Now, I have to ask the big question here, because I've seen a lot of reviews about it that, Mm -hmm. yes, it's all the new hotness, but people are just kind of lukewarm on Flamecraft. What were your thoughts on it?
0: you got some lukewarm – dude, everything I'm seeing is gaga. Scott, I posted uh, – okay, so spoiler for, what, next episode or maybe the one after that. We're going to do some talk about some of the best games in 2022 as it was a phenomenal year. And, uh, you know, I put that post up on the Facebook. Hey, guys, what are some of the best? And we had a lot of responses saying my favorite, the best, was Flamecraft. And I was like, oh, wow, really? Maybe that's uh, – maybe this Ooh. is new – Okay, this is going to be a first impression thought. I really haven't made up my mind, but let's go over what I like and then some things that I might be a little bit worried about. So what I like, this is going to be a theme for anyone and everyone who goes anywhere near the game. It is unbelievably charming. The art is phenomenal. Uh, artist was Sandra Lang. Let's throw that out there. Uh, it kind of reminds me of – I got Sarah from – the Barnes and Nobles, uh, a few years back, I got her a book called Too Hot to Hug. And it's about a dragon who's nice and warm, but he as he grows older, he gets warmer and warmer until they can't stand him. But he was afraid of water. And it, why am I teaching the book? The art. <laughs> I'm not tragic. going to summarize the book. Holy cow. That's No, 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 no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, like, now I have to conclude the story. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> he eventually falls into a river and it cools him off. Like it it makes the river not so cold. And it also cools him off, so he's able to come back and live with the people again. Uh, that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that the art in this book was adorable, and it's similar in this game. I actually had to look it up to make sure that it wasn't the same artist. The art is charming. Uh, I love that. Pieces. Now, mind you, I had Nikki's copy, which means that it had the Super Ultra Mega rop- Rocket Ship Deluxe version, but the bits are great. The board is a neoprene mat. All good stuff, all tied together by the story book-like art and some clever cutesy names of these adorable little dragons the game's fun it leaves players to mostly do their own thing not usually interfering with each other so if that's your thing that's going to be a huge upside and with six shops that are being altered you know altered around with tinkered with there are tons of options when it comes to your turn and often i find a lot of people love this in games I, i don't know if i love this but often when it's your turn to pick one of these options it's all good stuff it's do i want this good thing or that good thing or this good thing I suppose what it means is that you're not going to like play yourself into a corner. Your opponent's not going to checkmate you. Uh, you're not going to trip over your own feet, that sort of thing. Now, not necessarily downsized, but you know, I said there's some things that, you know, maybe have me worried about. I was waiting for the here. butt. Oh, there's always a butt, right? Um, I do that with every game. Butt. I do that with the games that I love, Scott. You know, you know how we roll. This game's inoffensive. Uh, <laughs> weird <laughs> statement. I, I know. It's entirely inoffensive. I mentioned earlier that you're going to find yourself choosing between good things every turn, which is fine. But that also does something to the game where you it does something that the tension will say. You can do very little to differentiate yourself from everyone else at the table. And the person that's making really good choices, they're probably going to win but they're not going to be all that far uh, ahead of the person that's making blatantly less efficient decisions, right? It feels like an hour of everybody doing their own thing with almost no interaction, admiring the cute dragon, collecting the pieces, and then the game ends. All right.
2: It seems to me that this is kind of following a very similar path to games like Takaido. Not necessarily in gameplay, but kind of the feel. Like, you know, you have a beautiful production and artwork, very simple gameplay, an inviting theme, and no, it's, this is where it kind of departs from Dokaido, but no bad decisions. Which is why I love Dokaido, because there could be very, there's very excruciating decisions in that game. What I've been hearing that from you and from other reviewers that there really is no optimal move or bad move. It's kind of just like ho 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 or happy little dragons.
0: There's, yeah, there's always going to be a better move and a worse move. You know, if, if you're looking, your shops might say this one gives you four meat, this one gives you five meat, this one gives you, you know, uh, four bread, right? So you're always going to be picking between good things. And I guess if you like took your time and like did the the Venn diagram in your head, you could deduce which one is the best. But the point is that they're all they're all reasonable. Um, so therefore, I think that makes it lack that tension. And when you lose the tension, I think you lose the memorable moments. We've mm. all been caught with that guy that insists on telling you about that one time when I was playing Cosmic Encounter, right? You know, And it's like, okay, I, I zoned out, dude. I'm not actually listening. But he has that memory, right? I'm not talking about what a great group of friends that we played games with kind of memories. I'm not talking about memories of the food that people – brought to the game day or the camaraderie. I'm talking about moments that are created on account of the game that's being played in that moment on the table that sticks with us. And maybe my hold up with Flamecraft and probably the reason that I'm not like super antsy to get back to the table is I don't think it's ever going to produce that moment. It's an entirely inoffensive game. There's never going to be that stand-up moment where, you know, or or the laugh out loud or the point the finger, the backstab, nothing that's going to ever stick out. It's a delight when you're playing and I like it. I'll play it again I just don't know that, uh, for me, it was like, wow, game of the year. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to crap on the game. Uh, I'll say it again. I think a lot of folks will love it, and I really enjoyed it, though it did feel kind of of run-of-the-mill.
1: So what you're saying is that this game is completely devoid of damn-it moments. It is entirely devoid of
0: damn-it moments. You will (laughs) never say damn-it in this game. You know what? I hate to say not swear. <laughs> a lot a lot of games are like this so I this probably isn't a fair assessment but if you took away the super cute dragons
2: it would be the away, same
0: you take away the great art from any game and it it detracts from the game you take away the great pieces from the game and it detracts from the experience mm-hmm. obviously if you're playing it on flimsy pieces of paper it's not going to be as fun but whenever you take away the veneer and you look strictly at what mechanically is happening in the game uh, veneer, why did you repeat veneer?
1: Sorry, it's a Frasier moment.
0: We're trying to be professional.
1: So if Michael Brighton is uh, listening, Mike, that one's for you.
2: I can age you guys a little bit and say what's Frazier.
0: Oh God, you don't know what Frazier? Oh, is?
1: shut up! Talk about Frasier. <laughs> <playing crap. laughs> <You too. laughs> I just find it. Uh, Josh, thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>
0: Anyway, that's sort of a first impression look at Flamecraft. I liked it. I don't think it's going to hit game of the year, but it is a delightful game, and the art is out of this world.
1: Well, very cool. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to be rushing out to play it, but glad we heard about it, though. So that's an awesome part there. Thank you.
2: Oh, my my God, they're hanging out with the angels. (laughs) You can't both do a thing. (laughs) I'll let let Scott do it.
0: Sorry. (laughs) No, it's ruined now. It's ruined. Let's just get right to it. Top 100. You ready, guys? Yeah.
2: I'll be quiet.
0: (laughs) Let's talk Prime Movers. Sleeping Gods is up four spots to number 70. Falling Stars, the Seventh Continent, down three to 79. That's strange. Well, first, they got the new uh, Seventh Citadel coming out. So while I would say that might be a factor... You know, I don't think Gloomhaven's going to go down because Frosthaven came out. Brass Birmingham barely budged when – uh, Right. Uh, I'm sorry. Brass – what? Lancashire barely budged Lancashire, when, when Birmingham yeah. came out. Um, you know, Seventh Continent was kind of early in the uh Discover Things modular uh, uh board with cards, you know, storytelling kind of game. Maybe it's just showing age a little bit. I don't know. Top 100 debuts. We've got Obsession. Cracking the top 100 at number 99. New Highest Peaks. Dune Imperium. Did not expect to see that here again. Number 12. Dune Imperium is on the cusp Uh of being a top 10 all-time board game.
1: I played with all the expansions the other day. It speeds it up remarkably. But I don't know. There's still something about that base game. It's still so good.
0: So you got the expansion play in, and you opted today to talk about Skull. So what else is (laughs) new here, Patrick? (laughs) Wow. Eclipse, second nod for the galaxy, up to number 23. The Crew, Mission Deep Sea, uh, number 39. That's its highest. Cascadia has cracked the top 50, currently sitting at number 50. Great Western Trail, number 53. That's a second edition we should clarify. Kanban EVs at 68. Sleeping Gods, as we said, is at 70. Cthulhu, Death May Die, Slow climbing up to 88. And Obsession, as we mentioned, up to number 99. Happy birthdays, and we have got a bunch of them. Raiders of the North Sea and Root, four years apiece. Five years apiece for Gaia Project, Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Six years, original Great Western Trail. Seven years, Orléans. Then we go up to nine years, Caverna, the Cave Farmers. Ten years for Zulkin and War of the Ring 2nd Edition. And finally, Brass Lancashire, 15 years. Woo! Nice, nice. Well, at least we got a
1: nicer version of Brass now, so... That's, that's a good point.
0: you ever get those mm-hmm. iron clays? you ever see the iron clays that Roxy puts out?
1: Yes, I'm sorry. I just had me drinking a glass of water there. <laughs> yes, uh, those things really do a great job. Just really making the game that much better. Just the sound of them, everything like that. Wonderful, wonderful upgrade to that game.
2: So some board game ASMRs. The iron clays are now going to go together. You don't, you don't know what ASMR is? You didn't know what Frasier is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's get on with our her video. Designed by Max Anderson, Zach Dixon, and Austin Harrison, released in 2022 by IV Studios, Mythic Mischief puts you in control of a high school faction in the school library, trying to avoid the Tomekeeper and find ways to get your opponent's team caught. Get an opponent figure caught to score a point, and the first team to score 10 points wins the game. So at the start of play, each player gets a faction, which includes three miniatures, and a player board with abilities that are specific to your faction. You'll flip over a before-lunch card, which shows where players place little tomes of their color on the board, obstacles, and walls. Players then place each of their three figures into the 5x5 library, and the Tomekeeper figure is placed in the center, then you're ready to play. So first and foremost, that before-lunch card with the setup, it shows the pattern that the Tome Keeper is going to follow on its turn. So you finish a turn, and the Tome Keeper gets to move towards its next checkpoint, ideally with an opponent figure in the way to score you a point. And I should point out that if a piece is captured, it basically respawns on the following turn. So what do you get to do on the turn? Well, you'll have some number of actions determined by your player board, and this can be manipulated throughout play if you collect your tomes that are scattered throughout the library. So the amount of times you can do any given action is truly dependent on your faction and what you choose to do with those tomes. So what are we doing? You can spend movement points to move. You can spend points to move walls within the library, effectively rerouting the Tomekeeper. You can make the Tomekeeper move extra spaces along its path. Or finally, every faction has a method by which it's able to move opponent pieces. So you use up your action, then the Tomekeeper moves towards his next checkpoint, then your opponent gets to go. After the Tomekeeper's reached all three checkpoints on the before-lunch card, then you flip the after-lunch card, which provides three new checkpoints. When the Tomekeeper's reached its final checkpoint on the after-lunch card, the game ends, and the high score is the winner. Remember though, you score points when your opponent's piece is captured, and if anyone scores 10 before the end of the game, then they win instantly. Now there's a little bit more to the game, namely that each faction board has stats and abilities that are all different, plus each faction has their own before lunch special move and after lunch special move. Plus, there's a ton of cards in that deck for before lunch and after lunch setups, so the game has a ton of variables ensuring that no two plays are ever the same. So now that you have the gist of the game, we can't wait to tell you how we felt about Mythic Mischief.
1: Within the hallowed halls of mythic manor is a repository of tomes. While not off limits per se, these tomes have been deemed either too valuable or too dangerous to be handled without supervision from a teacher. Recently, students have been circumnavigating such restrictions. So a new teacher has been put in charge of the tomes. The students not so lovingly refer to this teacher as the Tomekeeper. The seriousness with which which the Tome Keeper executes their duties has led to a new competition among the students. Who can hide in the repository of tomes without getting caught? It's the perfect chance for the students of Mythic Manor to finally prove once and for all who is best in class. Let the games
0: begin! right, guys, it's that time we're going to do the 8-bit breakdown of Mythic Mischief. We're going to look at eight facets of this game, starting with the art and components, all the way down to wrapping up with was it fun and who's it for? Josh, you're the guest. Why don't you take the floor for the art and components?
2: Ivy Studio knocks it out of the park each time with their games, I believe. They are a graphics and kind of presentation-forward company publisher, in my opinion, and mm-hmm. Mythic Mischief is no exception. It is a quality, quality product. The art is very charming, very cartoony, reminiscent. It kind of reminds me of modern-day Cartoon Network-type artworks so of Steven Universe we over, what's it called, Craig of the Creek-type stuff. Mm-hmm. And these little yes. shows, it really brings out kind of a wacky, comical style, which is very reminiscent of the game. And the components go along with that. They have miniatures, very well-done miniatures, that really very. bring out the characteristics and kind of the quirkiness of the different factions, or I guess clubs, God's like what, the, what the game calls it, basically the different factions you play in the game. Everything's really well put together. The insert that they have in there is very well done. It makes set up and tear down very easy. I really like the production, the art, and the components they've put into this.
1: Yeah, whenever I look at this, I felt that this would make a great Harry Potter adventure game. Uh, the magical st- school, the different students... Uh, it, it, wait, wait, no. This would make an excellent Wednesday board game Ooh. because you have the witches, you have the zombies, you have all the different classes there, and it has a great look, and the minis are just begging to be painted. The thing that got me was you have, you're really kind of squeezed into what kind of game you are, so it felt like a less punishing version of Blood Bowl.
0: Fair points, fair points. I think Now, I- what would you think? You know what? At this point, I think Ivy Studios basically shown that they don't make games that aren't completely deluxe. Uh, Josh, you started saying that Ivy Studios puts out a quality product, and I was like, oh my goodness, he's he's looking at my notes or something. Uh, there's not a lot of art in this one, basically just your characters on your play board, so it's hardly worth mentioning art either. I mean, you like it or you don't, and there's not much of it. game comes with four factions, and there are various expansions or pledge levels. Like, you get the Headmaster box, it's going to have several more expansions in there. Each team has those little, like, cube-shaped Uh, tome markers three minis per team each player gets a player color and while they're not like rising sun quality minis they're way better than they needed to be Uh, truth be told this being an abstract game you could play it with just like different color pawns but having the little characters does help it out a bit you've got those game are they game trays inserts they got really nice inserts in that box too i do think they are game trays yeah Okay. You've got the Tomekeeper, which, if again, with the Headkeeper Pledge, you have two boards, so you can play a four-player team game, and they give you two Tomekeepers in there. He's a big, chunky, plastic piece. The wall sections are plastic walls. It makes it feel more like a library. I like that as far as uh, art and components go. It's not just a grid with some junk on it. But this is very much an abstract game, and whether or not folks would even care to give it a try, I mean... I don't know, but the production and the table presence are what's going to get you to sit down and maybe, okay, you know what? I will learn about this. This does intrigue me. You know what I mean? Sometimes an abstract game, I look at them myself and I'm like, that is a grid with some glass beads or that is a grid with some chits. I don't know. This could have been that, but they found a way to make it more theme and immersion what do we think guys uh so we've got a theme here we're running around a library we're trying not to get caught by these tome keepers you can shift walls you have special abilities you can manipulate the layout so as to force your opponent to get into the tome keepers way what do we think about the theme and the immersion of mythic mischief
1: i'm going to jump in here and I think that the theme is definitely there. You get a feel that you're in this magical library and the Tone Keeper is watching out for everything. I'll get in more of this later, but you do get the feeling of sneaking around the library. So I did definitely feel immersed whenever I played this game.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I do have to agree. You were saying it is purely an abstract game, and it really is. But I think the theme and the asymmetry that comes with some of the factions does elevate a little above there are some games where, like, I believe, especially abstract games, where when you add a theme onto it, it would take away from the experience. Like, if you look at mm. games like Shobu, Shobu, if it had a theme on it of, like, mirroring, like, I don't know, like, mirroring universes or something, it wouldn't nearly be as good. I actually think that time you killed me kind of suffers a little bit from its theme. But this one, I really think the theme is, you know, raising it up and making it more accessible and more attractive yeah. to the players. And I do, so there is, I do agree. Maybe not as immersive as a like a Tidal Blades or some other games I've played, or maybe even like a Moonrakers like from IV, but it does bring you in a little bit.
0: It does, uh, And you know, it's not trying to be as immersive as this. It's working with what it has. It is a grid-based abstract game, and they found a way to take your mind off of this is the grid to this is the library. Now, bit number three is the complexity. Let's keep going here with
1: you, Patrick. What did you think about the complexity of the game?
0: Uh, it's relatively simple. You got four basic things that you can do with your actions on your turn. Uh, there is a little bit of double checking exactly what your specific faction actions, faction action, <laughs> faction action. <laughs> faction action. Uh there is a little bit of checking what your faction actions are on your turn. I kept on forgetting. Like every team's going to be able to move walls in different ways. You, you know you can move walls, but it's like okay, am I the the ghosts can put them on the opposite side or am I the witches that carry them with me, You and know, etc. Uh sometimes the iconography isn't quite as clear as I'd like, but that's not really complexity so much as like the graphic design, the layout or more my dumb dumb brain sometimes. I suppose that's for downsides. We won't get into that here. Not a terribly complex game. It's just uh allocating your actions per turn. How do you want to use them? What say you guys?
2: It's not a complex game. It really isn't. I think that this game can be taught to any person who's played any amount of ho- modern hobby games, really. I think if you have people who play Catan or take a try, this is kind of a little bit a little bit of a next step to them, but it's not difficult. Like I read the rule book once. And I think I understood everything the game had to mm-hmm. offer. Yeah, I understood it what it was. Yeah, it, it wasn't really like, they're, like. I think the biggest thing you said, like some of the graphic design mm, had me going back to the rule book and maybe some rules clarifications on some edge case stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, throughout, I, I taught the game to my wife in 10 minutes after reading the rule book for about 30 and actually having understand the game signal, sitting looking at everything. So not really mm-hmm. difficult at all to teach and not really difficult at all to learn.
1: Even though you have a plethora of the teams that you can play with powers and all this kind of stuff, it really fit into a light yet challenging kind of game here. Because, yeah, with the abstractness of it, you really need to look at the bigger picture. But what's nice about it is the bigger picture is a small little board. So it's Mm -hmm. nothing that's that big or that overwhelming. Great little game to play at a coffee shop. And works out well. So you have a lot of decisions, but in a small area. So it's not the complex. You have to deal with the space that you are given.
0: Bit number four is the rulebook and learning curve. Josh, you already started to talk about the rulebook. You went through it once and you were able to play?
2: Yeah, I really was. It made sense how the game was laid out. Mm-hmm. I Maybe it's because of the way I do rulebooks, which is a lot of, you know, just sitting down with, with the box and opening up as I go. But I had a good grasp of how the game flowed with the rulebook. It wasn't anything amazing, but, you know, as we talked about, I mean, rulebooks aren't going to be the, the game changer. Like, oh, this is great. The rulebook does its job or it doesn't. And I think this one does its job.
0: Agreed. And you know what? Honestly, I, I in my notes, I put down the same thing. Finished the rulebook and I was like, okay, I think I'm good to uh, play this and teach it. It's a big rulebook. Big as in many pages. Uh, a small as far as actual size of the pages goes. It's more like a pamphlet rule book, like, I don't know. Lots of pictures too. Lots of pictures. They had full turn examples in there too. So anything that you did need clarified, they did a darn good job of clarifying it. The only, the only catch, and I'll put this into the learning curve half of it, is that Man, you get your faction board in front of you. you You're like, okay, wait a minute. And now, so this one's move walls. And how do I do that? So what happens is your faction-specific abilities and clarifications, they're all in the back of the book in that rule book. No no problem. No biggie. But when you're playing, you don't have like player aids for your specific faction. Mm. You have the information on your board, which includes the iconography, but sometimes that's not clear enough. So, you know, Scott and I are playing. I'm like, okay, wait, I need the rule book. And then it's Scott's turn. He takes his turn. It's back to me. Then it's back to Scott. And he's like, can I see the rule book? And he's flipping back to his page. Uh, kind of annoying. Like I'm even considering, like maybe scanning the faction pages in the back of the book, just so that, like, okay, here you're the uh, you're the witches. Here's your uh, your sheet. You're gonna be the zombies. Here's your sheet, so that you can say, oh, okay, I know exactly what everything does and how it works. So curve for me was like, yeah, the first time you play any given faction, it's kind of annoying.
1: Yeah, and being on the side of the learning curve. Yes, it was very easy to pick up a lot of things here with the little cards where you set up the walls, where you set up the obstacles, things like that. But yeah, it was just something there where you had to go back and like, and and that's one of those things I hate hearing whenever you're playing a game, whenever you're playing, you're into it. And then someone says, can I see the rule book? And then you think, oh, they're just trying to break the game now or something like that. But it was just really just clarifying little things here. So kind of made the rule book with buckshot instead of, like, a fine-tuned bullet, if you understand. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, just oh, yeah. threw all this stuff out there instead of just really narrowing down their scope of everything.
0: All right, guys, let's get on with bit number five, the meat. Where is the meat of the game?
2: Josh? The meat of this game comes from the manipulation of the bookshelves. I really do think it's about manipulating the bookshelves and the positions of the other faction you're facing on the board in order for them to get caught by the Tomekeeper. So really, it all, I mean, you could say like, oh, it's, I, I mean, you could definitely make the argument like it's about manipulating your action cues, all your action selection dice and stuff like that. But I believe all that feeds into changing the bookshelves, moving them around, shifting them around until you're able to Get the bookkeeper on the path you want him to, the Tome Keeper, on the path you want him to, so he runs into the other faction, giving you victory points. So really everything feeds down to how can I move other players' pieces and how can I move the bookshelves to get these points in order for me to win the game.
1: Josh, you ignorant slut. Uh, (laughs) You are wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I deserve it. I was thinking the same thing. I thought he was wrong. (laughs) I interrupted you. Uh,
1: when they, when they, no, uh, no, no. I do. Th- I, I do look at that, and I see what you're saying. Uh, but I actually did go with the route of the action cubes because that was the whole idea there. Of whenever you're manipulating those, that would give you the ability. But yeah, I do completely agree with you and understand whenever you say that that manipulates moving of the walls and making that maze a little bit tougher there for the your opponents. In my mind, it was the manipulation of the, of the cubes, increasing your movement or, or different things like that. That was the biggest thing there with that.
0: I think you're both right. Everybody wins. I think you're both. uh, Scott, (laughs) I went with the action to the actions as well, especially whenever you collect a tome and you get to increase one of your stats. But uh, I think Josh is just looking at the next level. He's taking the action portion. I don't want to say for granted. He's like, well, yeah, obviously you do things there, but to what end? manipulating the library. And I think we're looking at it one step before that saying, well, if you want to be able to manipulate the library, well, first you've got to be able to increase the right stats and choose. So maybe, a, a, maybe this is a, a double burger twice. Yeah. The he has the
1: reviews. bird's eye view of it. We have the worm's eye view of it. So Fair it's enough. same, but different really. Do worms have eyes? No, that's a legit question. I,
0: I'm not doing a bit here. I, don't no, know. No, I no, 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 no. I don't do. think they do. Okay. The worms have Mm.
1: But it's eyes, in artwork that's kind of a thing there in comics, the worm's eye view or whatever, looking <laughs> up at everything.
0: Can, can you imagine getting a worm? You know, like it rains, and the worms like come out on the driveway. You know, those little like sticky googly eyes, you know, that like for kids yep. crafts and
3: shit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I would have to say, tremors would be 10 times more terrifying if the tremors had <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I mean, I love tremors, but holy cow, that would be horrifying. Oh, they're graboids. they graboids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, boys, let's talk replayability and variability of Mythic Mischief. We've got a bunch of variables here. What with the setup, the Tome Keeper's Path being dependent on those cards, more so the various teams that you can play. that That's an obvious one. You know, that's obvious the ghosts, that's going to change things up a good bit. But make no mistake, I thought, aside from the special move that each team has, the variability is in how you do the same things. Like, it's not like one team can move walls while the other one can Drastically alter the direction of the t- No, the, every team can move walls. It just does it slightly different. Everybody can move opponent figures. They all just do them slightly differently. It strikes me as a game that you could play with your significant other over and over your gaming buddy over and over. And yet I can see where you might not feel that changing your team is going to make enough of a difference to shake that core arc of play, which is avoid the tome keeper while trying to manipulate your opponent's position. What you guys think? Replayability, variability.
1: I really do agree with what you said there. I don't know if there's that much with the variability. Sure, you have a number of different setups, place characters in the walls, as well as the different abilities for each team but the mm-hmm. replay- replayability is where I feel it shines because you could play with the zombies and unlock an idea whenever you're playing against the witches and think, oh, that would work out great with them. So then you play with the witches, and, but then you figure out something that'll work out great for the vampires. So I want to go back and play with the vampires now and use that thing. So there's a lot of things that unlock ideas for other factions that play on the replayability of this game. It's not something that's going to be like thinking up the new strategy in Twilight Imperium that you have to go through a four to six to eight hour game just to see if that strategy works, this is 20 minutes. So it's nice to be able to get that instant gratification of trying something new.
2: I definitely think the tactical nature of this game lends well to both the replayability and variability. I do agree with you guys that there really isn't a ton of variability. The, the, the asymmetry is not Devastatingly game breaking, like might be in Root mm-hmm. or Twilight Imperium, but the after the after lunch and before lunch powers that each faction gets does give you a little bit to think about as you play the game. I definitely myself enjoy the after lunch section of the game more, and mm-hmm. I look forward to that because I bl- I think the after lunch specials are more yeah, interesting, they tend to be more powerful. Yeah, they tend to be more interesting, more powerful to play with as opposed to the before lunch specials, but. I think this game, like you said, this is a this is a game I'm going to play with my wife a lot. It's going to be me and my spouse sitting down, playing back and forth, choosing factions, i I'll gladly get some of the expansions to see how they work as well. But you're not going to be doing anything drastically different each game. You're moving bookshelves, mm-hmm. nippling the tomekeeper, trying to capture other people's pawns. Now we go to the one that's kind of uh, iffy here. We go to bit number
1: seven, The Downsides. The size of the board was the downsize for me. Yes, I said I I like the footprint of this game. It's not huge. It doesn't take up a lot of real estate. But it's also where it lost me because it feels very claustrophobic. You have a small board you're playing on. I think it could really shine if you had maybe two more rows or two more columns just to spread it out a little bit more to give you a little bit more variability that we were talking about, that there wasn't really that much in it for this. So See, just they the,
0: had to make it small so that you would end up in the tomb Like, if they added another row and grid, I worry that maybe it'd be too easy to avoid the tomb Keeper.
1: That's, that's true. But I'm just saying, for me personally, that was by downside. You felt restricted, felt a little restricted. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and not like a drastic change. I mean, one or two more, like either two rows – or two columns at very most, at the
0: very most. You know what? I thought this game was kind of basic. Honestly, like you strip away that's like the super deluxe components. You've got a really simple system that I don't think is going to blow anyone away, but I suppose that's going to be an upside for some people. To me the biggest downside might be that we had to keep referencing that damn rule book for just exactly <laughs> how our ability. Okay, I'm the new team. How do I move your pieces again? My my mm-hmm. iconography shows a dude with four arrows around him and then a slash and then an up arrow with a uh, just give me the rule book. And then you switch teams again and you got to do it again. Like like I said, I could see cutting those pages out of the rule book or scanning them or so, going on BGG mm-hmm. and printing out some player aids or something. Uh, to me that was uh, that was frustrating. Josh
2: I think this lends well to what you were saying with the rulebook. It's it's riddled with AP. I was playing games that were, you know, AP analysis paralysis. Mm, yeah. That at least the people I was playing with, I would have my turn done in like two minutes after all manipulation. Mm-hmm. I sat there for ten minutes at one point waiting for somebody to take their turn because they were trying to move out all in their mind the matrix of what is the best possible move because there are so many options available. That it just took forever. And I was sitting there just like, taking the move, going, krush, 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 in my mm-hmm. mind. It took so long. I think that lends well to like, you no, know, the, the, the graphic design, for at least for the asymmetric powers, left a lot to be desired. I'd rather have a little bit of text on there, like they do with the after lunch and school lunch specials, mm-hmm. to help me with mm-hmm. it.
0: You know what, I think you're to something with that AP, because... When Scott and I – when we were playing, Scott was kicking my butt. And you know what I think a lot of it comes down to is not that Scott was like AP or taking super long on his turns, but like when he was scoring points – it was because I was making – I think this is a game where in general, when someone scores points, it's because they caught the other – they caught their opponent in a mistake, in a misplay yeah. of some sort. And I think I was making some misplays. I was like, oh, I'll just do this. I'm going to give this a try. See what happens. Where I think Scott put a little bit more thought into it. So if you're going to win, you do have to put a lot of thought into it. Hence, like you said, AP has the potential to be there, especially when you start getting like – you get know, three tomes on your board, plus you get those two bonus bumps at the start of the round. It's like, man, I have got a lot of things I can do.
2: I think so. There's a, there's a blitz mode to it in the rule book as well, like when you set a uh. timer. I, I, I think that's fun. <laughs> I think I might need to get a chess clock so I can sit down with the people who I'm you know playing this with. And like, Okay, boom, chess clock go. You got two minutes to play the entire game <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want to sit here for ten minutes.
0: Well, you think that sounds like fun. Tell me, what are your thoughts? Bit number eight. Josh was... Mythic Mischief Fun, and who is it for?
2: Mythic Mischief is very fun. I enjoyed it. I am a big fan of abstracts in general, though. Mm-hmm. And an abstract with theme, like we talked about previously, something like Boop, which also came out last year. If you can get a good theme that elevates what you're doing on the board and sell it to me that this is more than an abstract this has some theme to it, mm-hmm. I love it. The Really, the theme brings you in. It gives you a sense of, of whimsical fun and it really captures you in. I think the fun you're having, though, may not be the typical thing like you have with Skull, like not, not Skull fun. It's a very thinky, but not overbearing amount of stress you feel as you mm-hmm. play the game. It's a good stress, but not an overwhelming mm-hmm. stress where it might scare a player away who's used to playing maybe some lighter abstract games. Yes, but I really think that's who it's for. the People who may be like Onitama, Shobu... Quarto, things like that. This is a next step for them in the abstract. Yep. There are some monumentally complex abstract games out there. And I think this is a nice, cool step into, hey, here let's play this game that's an abstract. And maybe you can generally move them into other directions. So I really think for the it's really for the abstract players and thematic players together.
1: What do you think, Scott? It was fun, but I don't know if it really tickles my fancy as a game I really am anxious to revisit. Okay. Um, this here, I think is great for a fun game, a fun abstract game for mm-hmm. those that like Harry Potter or Wednesday and those type of themes. And they want to enjoy a game that kind of puts them in that same universe, but gives them a little bit more that they don't see in the movie. Exactly. This is like the fringe areas around the main characters. Mm-hmm. So if you like an abstract game and you like Wednesday, This is a no brainer. Give it a try. Get this game. You're going to really love it. What did you think, Patrick? Bring us on home here.
0: All right. This falls directly in the camp of I liked it, but I didn't love it. Uh, Look, I've played a half dozen times now. I think that there's something magic here, but like, I'm, I've seen review after review that's just like glowing, right? And I think it's more a result of like the, Talking head, previewer content, tangent. Okay, tangent time. Uh Guys, I've come to really like listening to Luke Hector's Broken Meeple podcast. Do you guys listen to Luke?
2: I know. I, I've heard of the Broken Meeple. Yeah, he's pretty
0: straightforward, and he's to the point. And sometimes he gives brutally honest opinions, and and I like that. So, you know, if you're looking for another show, uh, Broken Meeple a, a pretty good one. Uh, one of his points that he brings up pretty regularly is how, like, there's some creators who gush over everything. You know, like everything is awesome. It's awesome. You know, don't want to make the publisher mad or I love your games. G- give me likes. Great, 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 great. Right. <laughs> I bring this up for this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking up other reviews to see if there's something that I'm missing. I wasn't blown away by the game. Everything I've seen is telling me that it's amazing. Maybe I'm missing something. So I'm watching these reviews and they're all from a year ago, which means they all came up when the preview was up and running and they all loved it. You know, while the Kickstarter campaign was going, you know, I don't need to name names, but like the usual suspects, you know, we, we we know, we know where I'm going with this They that creators who are on nine Kickstarters every week and they love them all. (laughs) The, the point is, I think that I went to these reviews thinking that they were going to channel something that I missed in the gameplay. And honestly, I don't think I missed anything either, either like I'm the only person that, is reviewing this game and wasn't blown away by it? Or Luke Hector had <laughs> broken meeples onto something. Rant over. Let me put it to you this way, guys. Um, Josh, do you own, do you own Mythic Mischief? I do, yes, I bought it. Okay, fair enough. Scott, are you buying it? I'll play it if someone else has it. And I sold my copy, so you ain't playing it. <laughs> there's a good abstract puzzle here, guys, but it it just didn't land for me. There's there's some neat wrinkles inserted into the simple system, but there wasn't a particular point where I felt like, aha, my careful planning has paid off. And more often than not, uh, it did kind of bug me. The points were scored when someone screwed up as opposed to the other player making a really clever play. I'll play it again. I'll teach it. I'll enjoy myself with it, but I don't see myself requesting it. I think 10 years ago, the production, the asymmetric factions, the extra board for team play, this would have blown me away. But consider the games that we've had come out this past year. Flamecraft, Dark Tower, Great Wall, Wonderland's War, Revive, Frosthaven, Heat, Mosaic, (gasps) Clank Catacombs, Carnegie, Scout, Endless Winter, Beer and Bread, Foundations of Rome, Planet Unknown, Woodcraft, Creature Conference, Oathsworn, and on, and on, and on. This was just last year. Right? Mythic Mischief. It's a fine game. And I think the players are going to enjoy playing it. But man, that competition for table time, that is a stiff competition. And this just isn't going to compete with some of the other titles for me. Now, who's it for? All that stuff I just said, you know, I, I can probably also admit that like two player abstracts, Josh, you clearly love them. They're not my jam, no matter how high the production quality. Uh, it's going to be kind of unique in the two-player space. It's got like an arena combat feel without the combat, exemplified by the fact that you can finish a game and switch up teams and go again. You know, I like that. Plays in about 20, 30 minutes. Uh, doesn't overstay its welcome. And if your game day typically consists of you and one other person, this could hit the spot.
2: I think you bring up a really interesting point there, Patrick. You Going back to your point earlier in the episode about Flamecraft, if you take away the theme and you take away the quirkiness of the production and just use bits and pieces, is the game mm-hmm. as good as it is in a full production? And I, I think I tend to agree with you that it's probably. In, in in we don't know about Flamecraft because I've played it, but in the case of Mythic Mischief, I think you're right. I think that the production. What did so you just call this game? Mythic Mischief. <laughs> okay. It sounded like you said, Mitchamichi. <laughs> Isn't that a, a Superman super villain? villain? mitch Mitscher, yes. mitch Mitscher. <laughs> he was cast aside and forgotten due to his cultural insensitivities. <laughs> wow!
0: You know I'm going to cut that. <laughs> oh, Sorry. three white guys doing a podcast talking about cultural insensitivities. <laughs> oh. Anyway,
2: anyways, but yes, going back to it, I do think that if you strip everything away, like you do it, like you were talking about flamecraft, is it as good as everyone's day it is? <laughs> I don't think so.
0: Scott can't stop laughing about cultural (laughs) insensitivity. All right. Let's get it together. Let's get it together. Uh, You're right, Josh. And and to be fair, you do that with any game. It's going to take something away. But for some games, it's profound. It knocks it down. Some games, it knocks it down a peg. Uh, Some games, it knocks it down several. And I, I thought that maybe this one did that for me. Adventures, before we cut to the level back, I do want to point out Mythic Mischief was very generously provided to us by IV Studios. So if that factors into your assessment of our assessment, keep on assessing. Mitcha Mitcha. <laughs>
1: you stand in the center of your factory. The sweet sounds of metal clattering and engines rattling are warming your entrepreneurial heart. Your goal is to build diversified scoring and production engines in order to outrival the other factory owners. One year ago today, we got a chance to play Corrosion and give it the 8-bit breakdown. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this game here. Lots of years... Lots of engineering, lots of great things going on. We really liked that whenever we played it the first time.
0: And yeah, had a positive review a year ago.
1: Yes, positive reviews. And actually, right now, I've been, like I said last episode, I've been redoing things here in my game room, and this has been put in the shelf right next to my ah, table. So it is. it is coming out very, very soon to play <laughs> this game again. I really enjoyed it with the moving of the room around to get like different powers each time that you play it. All the gears to use as money. There's a lot of great things in this game. It was a little bit tough to learn it to begin with. There's a lot of moving but parts. Once you learn it, it really does shine. It's a great, great game. I really look forward to playing it again.
0: You know, coincidentally, the first time that we played it was at PAX last year, and our blue-eyed friend here was a part of that play. Man, it was a a bumpy road for the first couple rounds, and by the end of it, oh, God, it felt like a well-oiled engine. Yeah. Yep. The script writes itself <laughs> here. Um, it's neat though. Uh, we, we started really like it, picked up a copy, uh, got to play it a handful of times last year, uh, made both of our top tens. Scott, you and I both put yes, in our top yes. 10 for the, of the, what, 26 games that we reviewed. It was in the upper half for me. And, uh, in right. fact, reached, I think number 10. It was like five or six views. It was, it was clunky. Oh, it was up, up I really like yes, that yes. one. I love that the things that you do progress, like your your engine progressively will, well, it deteriorates. You have some upkeep to do. Josh, what do you think of it? Have you played it since uh, PAX last year?
2: I have not. I liked it. And I agree with lots of the points you're saying. But there's something about it that keeps me from getting it. I every t- This game is in the game store, um, the game store that I work at. Mm-hmm. And every time I walk by it, I look at it it's like, you know, I should really pick that up. I should really buy that game. And then I walk away and I forget about it until I see it again and think that mm-hmm. exact same thought. There's which is sad. I don't know what it is about. This is kind of something I can't explain, but I feel like this game came, made a not even a very big splash, and then went. Which yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know why. Like it has everything that should make a great game. Great artwork. You know, really, really complex systems that you can really dig yourself into. It's not terribly expensive from what I remember, unless you upgrade it a lot. And, yep. you know, it, it's it's really great if you're all about, like, you know, all the artwork is about women and, you know, that industry. It's, for people, yes. for lots of people board gamers, that's really important to them. It should have been a huge hit. But for some reason, like, when I'm suggesting games to people, like, I need a heavy game I want to dig myself into, I always forget about Corrosion. And mm. I don't know why, because I sat down and more, I thought, about like, it's a really, I would say even a great game, but I don't know what it is about it that makes me forget it.
0: You know, you're right. This game has zero buzz after like two months Mm -hmm. after we played it and like it was getting the, you know, all the hotness and whatnot. As soon as it was out of the hotness, it went stone cold. We love it though.
1: This here, I think is definitely a game that profits from people seeing it being played. You look at the box, you don't get a lot of what's happening in that game. This is one that you have to have people out playing, people seeing how A connects to B connects to C, how the bits can corrode, and you have to constantly repair the machine as it's going. So it's something that really needs to have people out there playing it in order to get back into the hotness there. Quite possibly, it's just... The theme and the gameplay just does not shine on the box. If I didn't see it out on the table, I don't know if I actually would have bought it.
0: One year later, Scott, are we recommending Corrosion?
1: I think so, yes. There's definitely a great game in there. It's just one of those things where with the number of games coming out, sometimes things get lost and it takes rearranging your game room in order you to find it and find
0: that little gem there and bring it back out and play it again. Mm-hmm. I think I'd give this one a recommend too. Uh, the caveat being that like it is, we'll say an upper medium weight game, like that 3.25, yeah. 3.5 range where like, and the time frame, it's an hour and a half to two hours. It fits into a category that we tend to like. But if you're listening, you're like, oh man, I love Azul and Ticket to Ride. This is probably – I don't want to say it's going to be too complex for you. You'd be able to figure it out, but you probably wouldn't enjoy it if, if you're jammed. You're
1: going to be looking at your phone and different things like that. Yeah, it might overstay its welcome
0: for you. The right group, I think this would shine. And it's it's a bit unique in its category. Mm-hmm. There aren't a whole lot of very games about like you have to maintain the engine or it's going to deteriorate on you. So I'd give it a, a I've been saying conditional recommend, but you could do that with every game. Uh, a, a very specific group is going to love this game.
3: Hi guys, my name is Andrew Davidson with Aspermyability.com. During the 1840s, Americans viewed the Wild West as a land of unending opportunities. In 1845, editor John L. O'Sullivan surmised American insular expansionism with two horrible and ultimately tragic words. Manifest destiny. During this time, the territory currently known as Texas, belongs to the Republic of Mexico. After two failed attempts to purchase the land from the Mexican president, increasingly generous offers made both by President Tyler, then President Polk, the land grew chaotic and violent. O'Sullivan's Manifest Destiny created the ideology that Americans possessed a God-given right and duty to conquer and settle Western lands. Even though American President Tyler held anti-war sentiments in the South, a pattern of cyclical violence led to the Texas Revolution. During the second half of the war, the Manifest Destiny movement reached a climax. Southern citizens, critical of the All-Mexico movement, ran counter to the Southwestern instinct fueled by Manifest Destiny. The breaking point of American opinion occurred from February 23rd to March 6th, 1836 at a little place called the Alamo. The events at the Alamo swayed American belief of an all-inclusive landmass the Republic of Mexico previously issued. Originally built as a Spanish mission, time and constant changing of possessions left the Alamo disheveled and in disrepair. At the midpoint of the Texas Revolution, the mission, occupied by a combined total of 260 Texans and Tejanos, Hispanic residents who fought in the Chicano-American militia endured a bloody 13-day attack. The attack resulted in a bloodbath for those at the Alamo. The battle at the Alamo sparked a no-tolerance sentiment within the American public. The American public sentiment cultivated an overwhelmingly hostile opinion of Mexico and began to favor and even support the once undesirable Texan filibusters. The events at the Alamo sparked unity among American opinion, thereby coining the term, Remember the Alamo. Growing up, one of my favorite Western films was 1993's Tombstone. Tombstone is about vengeance, the savagery that comes with lawlessness, the uncanny bond between beloved family and friends, disease, grief, and how revenge, no matter what the reason, comes at a cost. Set in 1880, the film's story loosely follows troubling events in Tombstone, Arizona. Wow, what an unfortunate name for a town. Seriously, what were people thinking? Well, the town is overrun with tombstones, so that's what we're going to call it. Surely the town's bleak name won't hurt population growth and tourism. Am I right? Bizarre. I guess it's no more bizarre than naming your food establishment Sickies or using the word sperm to name anything other than what it's meant for. Sorry, sperm whale. As a kid, I appreciated the tenuous relationship between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Earp, a lawman, and Holliday, a sick and dying career criminal, develop a unique bond of friendship. My first taste of an on-screen bromance. Now, say what you want about Val Kilmer. However... His performance as Doc Holliday is absolutely astounding and there will be no convincing me otherwise. Born as John Henry Holliday, he earned his reputation as Doc Holliday by becoming a dentist, although I'm not sure exactly what constitutes one being an actual dentist in the 1800s other than renting a broom closet and posting a sign that reads dentist. More notably, Holliday was a legendary gambler and gunfighter. Holiday suffered from deep alcoholism and addiction to laudanum, which is a strong mixture of opium powder and alcohol. Yum-a-dum-dum, right? Holiday relocated to Tombstone, where he spent the final years of his life befriending the Earp family and becoming quite the moderately successful card player. He died at the age of 36. Wyatt Earp gained his reputation as deputy sheriff in Pima County. However, he gave up the life of the law, relocated his family to Tombstone, Arizona, and established a family business. Through a series of unfortunate events, he begrudgingly accepted the position of Deputy Town Marshal of Tombstone. Wyatt Earp was no pushover and no joke. Historians refer to Earp as the Old West's deadliest gunman of his day. At 3 o'clock p.m. on October 26, 1881, a 32nd shootout occurred at the OK Corral, located in Tombstone. Tensions had long been brewing between the aforementioned individuals and a group of infamous outlaws known as the Cowboys. Although brief, the gunfight at the OK Corral grew in the annals of history as symbolic. It represented how good hearted people, for the betterment of the town, refused to capitulate to the tyranny of criminal gangs. The gunfight inspired people to take a stand against violence and crime. It was like your local neighborhood watch, but with guns. Lots and lots of guns. A post-World War II America saw a dramatic increase in romantic Western narratives. During the 1950s, Hollywood strongly embraced the romantic Western narrative and character tropes. In his book, History of the Western Movement, Frederick Merck writes, "...many Westerns benefited from and contributed to the romantic West of the time, which presented the Old West as a dangerous place filled with roaming gangs of savage Indians and ruthless Mexican gunslingers." but also one of white noble heroes with clear-cut American values. Popular films such as The Gunfighter, 1950, Hondo, 1953, Shane, 1953, and Rio Bravo, 1959, centered on white male protagonists who face and overcome challenges based on their strict moral code. Actor John Wayne's popularity drove the American audience to the movies. Merrick writes that Wayne's rugged masculinity combined with John Ford's riveting action sequences created movies that elevated the Western from B-movie status to a classic popular Hollywood genre in its own right. In 1985, the anti-Western or Western revisionism movement infiltrated American culture. The Western revisionism movement focused on a historical interpretation Of the American West. A cruel and lawless place filled with rape, abuse, alcoholism, violence, poverty, disease, death, or immorality didn't fear to tread and the line between good guys and bad guys blurred into non-existence. Published in 2018 by Colossal Games, Western Legends is a two to six player sandbox board game experience players work against each other by assuming the role of an iconic figure during the time of the West. Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, Johnny Ringo, Wild Bill Hickok, and Jesse James, just to name a few. The goal of Western Legends is to collect as many legendary points as possible. The beauty of the game is how the gameplay affords players a multitude of opportunities to gain LPs. As far as my knowledge. The term sandbox is lifted from the world of video games. According to Reddit user John Tiller, sandbox video games date back to 2012. These games lack in providing player instruction towards achieving a set of objectives. Rather, the game gives players the tools to craft their own style of gameplay preferences through an engaging theme and by encouraging player imagination. Western Legends is a sandbox experience where the game drops your chosen character onto the map and affords you the autonomy to decide, with a bit of imagination, how you want your character to behave. You can become a paid marshal and go after bandits or other wanted players. You can become a wanted criminal by robbing the bank or stealing cattle. You can experience encounters as you travel in between towns. You can upgrade your gear and mount at the general store. You can ride into town and play poker all night. You can go prospecting in the mines and get filthy rich. With the Anti-Up expansion, you can hop a train and travel to an entirely different town on a different board. The point is that everything you choose to do in Western Legends yields LPs in some form or another. This sense of complete and total freedom is a breath of fresh air. Better yet... You're never completely committed to whatever you choose. If you start as a marshal for the extra cash, you can always rob a bank for even more. You'll lose your position as a marshal and become a wanted man, but hey, the possibility is there. Getting bored toiling away for gold in the mine? No worries, you can always get a job rustling cattle, or develop your natural talent at playing cards. Western Legends is absolutely stellar at asking its players Okay, what do you feel like doing now? And no matter what your response is, your choice will offer a chance at gaining LPs. Even more to the point, outside of the whole sandbox experience, Western Legends stands on two sturdy legs of gameplay. What a player does on their turn, how they spend their money, how they manage their hand, gives players a bite-sized chunk of strategy and provokes forward thinking. But the game experience never feels bogged down with complex rules, turn sequences, or bookkeeping. At the start of a player's turn, they choose to either gain 20 bucks, draw two cards, or gain 10 bucks and draw a card. That's it. You're off and running. And, of course, there's always player interaction. Players can fight each other, rob each other, play poker against each other. The whole gosh darn experience provides a perfect balance of player autonomy, and yet a tight enough board that encourages interaction and alliances. You may have a table of players running wild, wreaking havoc, and causing chaos. You may rob a bank and become a criminal, while your significant other dons the badge and devotes their turns to hunting you down and bringing you in, dead or alive. Win or lose. Western Legends is a fun and satisfying experience. With four expansions for the base game, Anti-Up, A Fistful of Extras, The Good, The Bad, and The Handsome, and Blood Money that add a connecting board along with more legendary characters, more gear to purchase, new opportunities for LPs, the game has plenty of opportunities for new, fresh, and engaging gameplay. However, if you're not one much for expansions, because those gamers exist, trust me, the base game is jam-packed with replayability. Due to character selection, weapon variation, and sandbox gameplay, I cannot find any negative considerations. I've played Western Legends with new gamers that couldn't care less about the history or Western theme, and to this day, I still receive text messages begging to play quote-unquote, that Western game again. Well, Pilgrim... What else can I say? Rather than blather on and on and on, which comes easily to me when talking about such an exciting game, I'm taking a bit of Western advice. Doc Holliday once said, There is no normal life. There's just life. So get on with it, okay? My name is Andrew Davidson. I hope I have given you something to think about.
2: The Cowboys are finished, you understand me? I see a red sash, I kill a man wearing it.
3: So run, Turk! Run! Tell all the other curs the lie's coming. You tell I'm coming, and
2: hell's coming with me. You hear? Hell's coming with me.
0: So this weekend, I'm doing a game day with Brennan and Mike out at Brennan's cabin, and one of okay. our go-tos that we haven't done in a long time is Western Legends. And having listened to Andrew, I think. I think I'm Jones for it. I told Mike to bring Zaya. Brendan wanted me to bring Eschaton and we're going to have plenty of time for one or two more games. I might tell you, mm-hmm. you know what? Let's do Western Legends guys.
1: Yeah. Whenever I got a chance to play the, this with you and Mike, I didn't know exactly what to expect. It is so wide open. It was an interesting thing to experience. I always played good guys. I always do the good guys. I played bad. I was shooting everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I was having a great time playing it. Yeah, I'm uh, having a great yeah, time yeah, it's, shooting everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, oh wow! But I'm on a watch list now. I'm glad Andrew talked about this and brought up some more info on this because, yeah, it's one of those games that's hard to really pigeonhole into a certain category. It is such a
0: wide open sandbox for you to play in. Yeah, you hear sandbox a lot whenever you think Western legends. Sandbox in that Wild West theme. I know the base version of the game. You know, a lot of folks are like, "Oh, the prospecting's too good. You just get gold and you cash it in. You get a whole bunch of points for that, and then you sell your gold that you got whenever you cashed in the the nuggets." Right? That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Mining, mining is very profitable, and the natural way to respond to that is somebody's got to go and and like steal from that guy, rob that guy. But then you end up like self-policing. Not every game group is going to do that. And I know that expansions have corrected that o- over time. Man, I got all the expansions. And, you know, I, I was actually chatting with Andrew via text the other day. And he's like, so I have all these expansions and I've gotten to try out a few. And I was like, Andrew, I'm no good for chatting with you. I've got them all in the box. And for whatever reason, we always play base game Maybe we'll bust out an expansion. I told Brendan we're going to need the big piece of plywood down on the table Mm -hmm. in the cabin because we're going to take up a lot of space. But yeah, looking forward to it. Always a fan of getting Andrew's input on the show. Don't forget to aspermyability.com Andrew's also doing the segments from this show, oftentimes in greater detail, sometimes with saucier language Mm -hmm. uh, on the aspermyability podcast. So if you have a chance, give him a like, give him a listen, check out the website. He does written reviews as well. All Kinds of fascinating stuff from Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Now we got to get Josh, uh, see if he's out of the toilet so we can talk to AIR. There
2: he is. Y'all better. I feel great. (laughs) It's like a new man.
0: Guys, I pulled this one up because it's something that caught my eye. I didn't post it for Adventurers to respond to, but I saw an article and then I saw somebody asking the question. And apparently anyone that asks it now is kind of beating a dead horse. So I didn't want to bring it up just to get like, you know, trolled by people. But... Mm-hmm. I wanted the discussion today to be about AI art in board games. So what are we talking about here? Let's let's start right here. AI art. This is when you can feed a computer, an artificial intelligence. You can feed it a bunch of images, and then you can tell the AI, like, I want you to create a piece of work, like a, an art image of a horse on a beach, and it will produce it. We've all seen it. You scroll down, you know, social media, and you see, like, some of those clickbaity articles, 20 times that AI art made terrifying imagery, right? So <laughs> inevitably you go down the rabbit hole with it. What about when publishers, designers, what if board games start incorporating this? That's really the core of what I wanted to talk about there. It seems like there's some concern about it. Uh, so let's start there, guys. Con- concern with AI art in board games? Because my first thought was, man, some of this AI art is incredible. I love this idea. It's sort of around the table. Do we have reason to be concerned? Do we love it? What are our thoughts? From my
1: point of view, looking at it, I like the idea of just actual artwork. But the AI artwork, it's one of those things that give you another option. And that's what I look at it there. But I can see the concern about people getting to that in, in using it as a crutch or whatever you want to call it to get their game out quickly. If they want to, they don't have to wait for all the work to be done for the artwork. They're doing things like that, but I appreciate the artwork, but it's, it's getting tougher and tougher now as AIs are getting smarter and smarter and smarter to really
0: define what's artwork and what's the AI. Uh, Frankly, the AI artwork that I've seen is all amazing. I love it all. I think it's all awesome. Like I I haven't seen AI generated art that I'm like, well that's crap. Granted, I appreciate I don't think that I think most artists are very good at what they do. And I think that the AI art equally, you know, I I look at something that's that's generated, I'm like, that's really cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. I could see a lot of it being put into a game, and, and quite frankly, for a lot cheaper uh, than any artist would be.
1: Josh, what are your thoughts? Because I know that you do a lot of designing with games and everything. What are your thoughts on it? I'm really
2: interested in seeing what you have to say. I think Patrick nailed it on the head when he said dead horse. <laughs> this is <laughs> this has been going on for a very, feels like a long time. It's probably only been a month. But in many design forums,
0: well, see, you're in those design forums. You you hear this a lot more. Like really? this is front and center for you, isn't it?
2: It is. It really is. It's it is aggressively front and center. It is sticking its nose in your face and saying, "Smell me!" Uh, how mm-hmm. in your face? It's it's ridiculous. But anyway, beyond that, it's a it's a double edged sword. That's a cliche analogy. It really is. We have on one hand, for young designers like myself or small publishers. Many of them mm-hmm. are out there. This is a great resource.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Art is expensive. It is probably one of the more expensive things you will spend on your game. Especially for those card games that have a bunch of art on them. Oh, like yeah. Each card has an art. That 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 is every single one of those pictures is a single asset that an artist has to create and they're gonna charge full price for. It is ludicrously it is. expensive.
0: Can you throw out a num Now I know, I know it's going to vary from artist to artist, but just give me like a. Let's say I want to make a card game, Josh, and I need uh, I need forty pieces of art per piece. How much am I going to spend per piece of art? What are we, are we talking? A hundred bucks? Five hundred bucks? A thousand bucks? Obviously, it's going to vary from artist to artist, but on average, what does one piece of work cost on, like you know, we'll say like an eight by eight small thing? Be it an actual painting or they did it using a a, a computer program to do the painting.
2: If you go extremely minimalist, I would say one art asset could range anywhere from $150 to $200 just for one art asset. On the low end. On the low end. That is extremely low end. So if If I'm being frugal,
0: my game's going to cost $6,000 for the art.
2: Yeah. If you're doing like a food chain magnet. Or somewhere, it's just a spreadsheet. Maybe one or two assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're maybe like five, five, 6,000. If you're mm-hmm. doing something like Everdell, or you're doing something like, oh, wow. if you're doing something like Moonrakers, you got to understand a board game artist is very different than a normal artist. They are going in there and they are drawing. Lots of times, you think of people like Quan Shai Moria, or even Ryan Lockett. Mm-hmm. You might look does his own stuff, but if you go in there, they are not only doing the cards and the board game, like the like the actual box art, they are doing sometimes the pieces. They are sometimes designing the board, they are sometimes designing pictures for the rule book. They're doing a whole bunch of different stuff. You could easily spend I have one project I heard, one of those giant massive kickstarters, they spent fifteen thousand dollars on art alone, and that's not uncommon from what I understand from people. Yeah. And this might be them this this could be one artist. I lots of times that kinda of number is not just one artist. It's mm-hmm. multiple artists they're grabbing from. Sure. It's still a lot on art. And you know, it's 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 a bunch. And you know, as me, if I'm starting my my own little game, I'm gonna put on just like on a public forum, like say drive through RPG or just like print and play arcade, I don't have you know, I don't even I don't even have a thousand dollars to spend on mm-hmm. art. So this I – I hate to say it because I want to support artists in the board game community. Sometimes in order to get started, I'm going to use AI art just to get my ideas across. Sure, I don't right. think – and there are some people in the community who kind of foo-foo on that. They get really upset when you say that. I mean – but I have to push back saying, and,
0: well – And the concern <laughs> being that an artist isn't going to get that work, but we're not an art community. We're a board game community. We're a little bit of everything, you know, and our art ties directly into board games. But, you know, I didn't join the hobby because I love art. I'm in the hobby because I love games, games first. You know what I mean? And Mm. if, if someone can produce a game that they otherwise wouldn't be able to produce, well, that's, you know, I'm in the board game hobby. I'm going to support that as opposed to an artist getting, getting, I would like to see both. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not all. Darn the artist! But I look at it as a good thing. I see, you, I see your side of the coin here being, "Hey, wait a minute! While this is bad for them, it's good for us."
1: But you doing that first game with the AI art, having it go out, sell copies of it, will then allow you to go out and get the artist for the next one. So it's a means to the end to get the artist later on. Once you get more solid in the game designing and everything and get a library, Mm -hmm. then you can go out and get those artists and everything. So without it, it's almost a hurdle you can't get over in order to get your game out there.
2: Yeah, for me personally, like I have an RPG right now I've been designing and I need art for it. Uh, Art is a very Mm -hmm. essential component. I'm not going to get into it and the ai art is the best way i can do to convey the ideas i'm trying to convey. sure. and i will say this, if a company, a publisher can hire an artist to do their art, i definitely believe they should. like if asmodee all the resources they have start producing ai art, i'd be a little bit like okay, like, eh, you're you're kind of skimping out on their asmodee.
0: why? Why? If, why it would is, I say if that? it's just as good as a, you know, I'm a good, we'll say yeah. me. I'm, I'm a known artist. No. No, I'm not You're just throwing it out there. If the AI art can make something that's just as good as a person and I'm producing a game, it, whether I'm Joe Schmo or Asmodee and I have the opportunity to save and save a lot of money or make a lot more money on the game or sell that game for a lower price. Why do you support paying more money to get your game produced?
2: I think the main reason I would be behind hiring more artists, I really, I think it really just comes down to a philosophy thing. It's just that I believe in supporting as many people in the community as I can. I don't think that's either good or bad. Like, okay. there's no, there's no like, hey, Patrick, your opinion is wrong because you believe. No, it's not. No, of it's course not. You're, wrong, you're, it's not right. you're not wrong. and I don't, And you know, some people who are very <laughs> outspoken. <laughs> Who? Some people who are some people who are very outspoken, who I won't name, might be like, "You're a horrible person for thinking that, Patrick. Mm-hmm. You're not." Like you know, what, you
0: know, I like to play devil's advocate. You know, uh, yeah, it's good. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily <laughs> <the> true.
2: <opinions. laughs> no, but these are important conversations <laughs> to have because people live mm-hmm. in, and especially nowadays, in such a horrible echo chamber that they can't handle sometimes these opinions getting pushed at them Mm -hmm. and so you know for me if you know if as for me if as did it and started producing AR I'd be a little finicky about it but I will say if the game is good I might go off the shelf and it might go off the shelf of the store and into my collection Mm -hmm. it's, it's just how it like it's I had I got asked the question like if AR started designing games how would I feel it's like well I might have to find a change in career then. I don't know. Like It's it's just the world we live in, and I have, I can either cry about it or I can adapt to it. And I feel like the war game artists are kind of running in the same boat, sadly. Are they going to up their game, or are they going to wallow and cry until it goes away? But I don't think it's going to go away.
0: Well, I'm a sculptor, and all of the minis are made by a machine, right? I can't get work in the industry sculpting miniatures because of machines and AI. That's not fair to me. Yeah,
2: yeah it's, see, it's Trump true. Trump card but, right there. Boom. And there's, and there's a Trump card there, but what did those? I think what did those artists do? They had to resort to knowing how to build things 3D online and right. take their visions from the table and put it into computer graphics. Because there is a huge demand for 3D graphic design, 3D like modeling in mm-hmm. board games right now, either freelance or just like as a permanent employment.
0: Oh, you see like Kickstarters a, all the time oh, to like yeah. get these STL files. It's a thing. That's they like a thing. hobby
2: within the hobby. Yeah, you can make bank being a – you can make oh, – I'm not bank, bank seller, but you can make a decent living just designing these 3D models for these giant Kickstarters for sure. I mm-hmm. mean, we live in a world where technology is rapidly advancing. Board games aren't exempt from that. We need to adapt. And I think mm-hmm. lots of the crying and hoo-hawing that's going on with some people, it's not going to help. It's not going to help the artists. It's not going to help the community. We just have to talk about how do we adapt to it.
0: So if I'm an artist and I need to adapt, where do I adapt to? Am, am I thinking like, okay, I need to also incorporate uh, graphics? Di- okay, I'm a bank teller. I had to go back to work. As you guys know, I'm no longer a retired stay-at-home dad. My wife said, hey, Sarah's in school for 40 hours and you have a lot of time. Why don't you pick up some part-time work? Uh, so I rather than get back into security and fraud, I just went back to teller. Tellers are kind of being replaced by the ATM. To the extent that one bank that I worked at when, you know, some eight years ago when I was a teller, they said, Hey, we want you guys to, you know, let customers know. Did you know you could deposit that check into the ATM? Did you know you could take a picture of that check? One bank I worked at, they said they gave us a whole bunch of checks. They were for one dollar from that bank and we would just write in the customer's name and we, yeah, we'll, we'll just give this check to you. Let me show you how to do it. And they go ahead and log into your app and here's what you do. And we were all like, you guys you're you're not only like working us out of the industry you're having us actively take a role like that became part of our job was you had to show people how to do this they would track how many checks you mobile deposited for people throughout the day what did we do we have to adapt okay, now you have to get people in front of bankers. Now you have to learn how to open accounts. Now you have to get your licenses and learn about investments, uh, you learn about mortgages. You have to adapt. And and I think that's what it comes down to. So Josh, what are some ways that an artist could adapt if that's inevitable?
2: And this isn't the end all be all. This is my opinion, obviously. Uh, just some I, thoughts, just shooting a breeze. Yeah. I really think that if a board game artist wants to separate themselves from, like, AI art, they really need to be very attentive on how they, what, what games they attach their names to. I mean, it, it may come down to that. Like, someone may approach you, like, I need to do art for my game. Okay, yeah, here's for the money. I mean, publish, they have to start thinking like publishers. When publishers get tons of pitches for designs and games, they pick the best of the best. They pick what they think is going to bring them to the top, the cream of the crop, because that game is attached to their name.
3: Mm-hmm. And people are going to remember mm-hmm. it for
2: yeah. that. So if you think of games, like when I say Ryan Lockett, you're thinking Sleeping Gods. You're thinking Above and Below. You're thinking Now or Never. You're thinking Near or Far. These are considered, not by everyone, but have a generally positive view in the gaming community. And his artwork is attached to that as well. And so his artwork gets a huge boost for that. People mm-hmm. like Quan Chai Moria, Vincent Dutrait. Vincent Dutrait mm-hmm. has a lot of – lots of his games aren't – lots of the games of Vincent Dutrait art may not be the greatest – But people know like, oh, this is a Vincent Dutre game. It's not – no, it's not. This guy designed it, but Vincent Dutre artwork is on it. Mm, That's going to become very important for artists moving forward. They need to attach themselves to the games that are going to elevate them as well because you you just can't – I mean, that's the best way I can put it. You have to be more careful about what they are putting their time and invest their money into. That might require them playing games that they – are getting commissioned to. That's just the spitball off the top of my head.
1: That's something it's, there. I know whenever I worked uh, with Game Toppers, with Berkey, one of the biggest things is there's uh, one of his uh, play mats has Vincent Dutrait artwork on it. Another one has Ryan Lockett artwork on it. You say, oh, it has Ryan Lockett. Ryan Lockett? Oh, let me see it. Oh. Because they have that whole attachment to it. So it's just kind of getting to the whole thing of, um, oh, is that a Matisse? Well, yes, it is. Oh, is that a Rodin? Uh, yes, it is. They have to work. And like you said, right? I think to a point they have to adapt to the point that their name means something to people with what they're putting out there.
0: Well, as we do like to incorporate thoughts of the community, Scott, you and I each picked a thought from someone else. BA says, I think it's a great thing for playtesting games is it lets you have a unique card art for free. I also don't mind it for self published or print and plays as those designers often don't have the budget to hire an artist. However, if an established game company ever used this type of art, I wouldn't buy the game. It's already hard enough for most artists to find work. I don't need a world in which computers take the work instead. Thus, I have to vote total boycott. And, you know, he said a lot of what Josh was saying, what with, you know, if a big company that can afford it does it, I'm not a fan. So, you know, some parallels to what you were saying, Josh, what'd you pick, Scott?
1: Well, I have one here. Jared says if the AI artwork is cheap enough, especially if there's a decent open source version, while a loss for artists, it's likely a net win for independent designers, at least in the short run lower barrier to self-publishing like we were talking about since you're not stuck with ms paint level graphics if you're not artsy but you don't want to take the financial risk associated with hiring an illustrator and or full-blown kickstarter campaign Mm -hmm. so fewer freelance artists but more independent designers and more self-published games maybe so yeah it's one of those things where it's it lowers the hurdles for people to get into this and be able to get their foot in the door, create a library, and then move into this where you are hiring artists to take over and do your games for you. If you don't have something this like this to help those independent designers to get their foot in the door, you may not have the next Arc Nova. I mean, there's a lot of things that could possibly not happen if they don't get in the door and do something like this.
0: Feels like uh one of those benefit for some, uh detriment to others. Type and anytime you have some sort of a technological advancement, some you know, some folks are yep. gonna stand to gain from it and some folks are gonna stand to lose from it. Very much so. So AI art and board games, guys, I don't think we necessarily got anywhere with that. We got some, maybe some overarching ideas, but you know, if it's a problem, we sure as hell didn't solve it. Uh, no, yeah, no, no,
2: no. Well,
0: let me ask you guys this. We'll, we'll round it out this way. A, a board game comes out from, uh, we'll say FFG and it uses AI art. Scott, are you buying it? It's a good game. We're, we're just going to say, oh, it's a good game. You know, it's got, got decent uh, gameplay, et cetera. Is the AI art going to keep you from purchasing it?
1: I would say the biggest thing there is the price point. If they are charging an exorbitant amount for that game that does not have an artist for it, no, I'm not going to So you're saying buy. it
0: better be cheaper
1: if they're saving money on the art. Exactly. They better be passing on their savings to the public there that's buying those games. Josh? I'm in the
2: same camp as Scott. I definitely agree with him. Hmm. The advancements in technology better reflect the price of what they're producing.
0: Okay, fair points, fair points. I'll I'll stick with you. I think that's a sit. I'm going to go with the crowd on this one. I I think that's a fair point,
3: guys.
1: We may not have solved that, but I think we're going to be able to solve something here right now as to who knows their thesaurus better. We're going to play a little game of thesaurusisms. Ah. Yes, hey, I'm Wink McMorningside, and we're here for thesaurusism. Hey,
2: Wink. So, <laughs> so glad to be here.
1: <laughs> so we're going to go through 15 games. These are games that are quite popular, All but right. I changed the titles of them just slightly to see if you can figure out what game I'm talking about. So, are you both
0: ready here? Okay. Do we get an example question and one for the event sure, so they sure. can understand we'll, the game? Sure, we'll give
1: you an example one here. Prestidigitation, the get together.
2: Oh, Magic the <sighs> Gathering. There you go. <laughs> I don't even know
0: what that first one was. I was like, I, okay, I got no chance until you said they get together. The only
2: reason I knew that is because like President's Dissertation is a magic spell from D and D. What is he going? with?
0: Wow. Okay. All right. We're ready to rock. Number
1: one, Evening Empire. Josh. Shoot, I
2: totally had it, and I Midnight Empire. Okay, three.
1: Two. One rising sun, and rising,
2: and rising, rising. Okay, go ahead.
0: Nope. night empire, so it's gonna be like a a nighttime na- night nation. Three, oh, it has gotta be on the tip two, of my tongue.
1: One uh, and twilight imperium. That was my first thought.
2: That was my first thought, and I didn't oh, go with
0: it.
1: <laughs> no. So we're zero zero after one. All right, number two. And fuego.
0: And fuego. What the hell is in fuego? fuego? Josh, en fuego. are you en 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 googling? Fire. You're no, no, googling. Three, fuego
1: two, one. This is the big one that came
0: out of Pax. Heat. Oh my
1: goodness.
2: Okay, wait, wait, wait. The wait, adventures wait. are going to thought... be
0: kicking our butt.
2: That's a different language. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not a thesaurus, That's yeah. The, come on now.
1: Come on. Boy. All right. Number,
0: <laughs> Number three. three. Cold Oasis. An oasis is a desert. A uh,
2: Josh. Forbidden Desert.
0: Nope. I got nothing. I got nothing. Oh, my goodness. So it's got to be, like, frozen or, or chilly. Frost or, Haven. Frost Haven. Oh,
1: Cold Haven. Oasis.
2: Oh, that's good. That's good. That was a okay, good one. So All right.
1: Level up is not. We haven't scored a point This yet, one here, if you guys don't get this one, I'm stopping the game right now.
0: Okay. Fair enough.
1: All right. Number four, still we're at zero zero. Clay Navy, Patrick Terracotta Army. All right, we're there we go. The Patrick's on the board. Yes, yes. yes. Take that all beard. Right. Don't you wiggle your Excellent. beard at me? He's <laughs> wiggling the beard. Number five, smoldering skyscraper. You both should know this because I know we've all played this game. Together,
0: smoldering. Uh, we played it together. Oh, yes. God, we don't, and I don't know it. What the hell have I played with Josh? I don't think I would play with all of you.
1: Three, two, one. Fire tower. Uh, of course, uh, of course. We played it at
0: Origins. Yes. Okay. We, we're terrible. Oh my gosh, we Josh, we're bad stank. at. Okay, are, so. You heard my episodes where I did this with, uh, jo- with Scott and Ryan and, like, it was a competition to see who could dig in first because they got them all.
2: What, are we on this number is, seven now
0: and we've only gotten one?
2: We're on number six. This is, oh. expert, this is expert level madness okay. all right.
1: I hope there's an adventure set in this
0: car like, these idiots, I've gotten all
1: five. <laughs> wow. Number six. The piece of land
0: after six. Patrick. Seventh continent. There you go. Boom. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: I'm reinvigorated. Okay. Here we go. Number 7. Boat brightness. Boat brightness. Uh shit.
0: Oh, oh.
1: It's very popular right now. Oh, oh. I
0: know it. I know it. Patrick Arc Nova. Yes. <laughs> uh all right josh in. you gotta now get on in. the board here exciting what are we at three nothing
1: oh my gosh three nothing we're oh at number goodness. eight i'm
0: gonna oh get so gosh. many chicks for
1: this ghost peninsula
2: oh yeah
1: peninsula. oh
0: josh oh,
2: sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is that your final answer <laughs> <laughs> wait
0: wait let, let me, oh I know what it is. I know what it is. Josh? It's Spirit Island. Yeah. Yes. Josh was on the board. Good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Number nine. God. Evening tussle. Josh. That's not a game.
3: I was gonna say morning, <laughs> <laughs> say morning fight, morning fight. I got it. Give, give
1: him the Sorry. three, two, one, or I got oh, it. Three, two, one.
2: Twilight Patrick. struggle.
1: No, oh. he
2: just got it right at the end of the
1: three, two, one. Give yep. Me. Are we tied? <sighs> no, still three to two.
3: Oh.
1: All right, Whew. number ten. The parapets of Pinot Noir. Patrick,
0: the castles of Burgundy. There you go. Parapet. A, a parapet dope. is not a thesaurus word for a castle. That's just the the ridge at the top of the wall, right? Okay. Well, the keep of Pinot Noir.
2: Ooh, me, me, me. Pinot I'm Noir kidding. is a wine. <laughs> so is Burgundy. Well, Burgundy's a yeah. color. Burgundy's yeah, Bur- a wine. Burgundy's it? also a you color. You can isn't get it? a
0: fine Burgundy, and
2: it's yeah.
1: a
0: San Diego newscaster. Anyway,
1: number eleven. A smorgasbord of Zeus.
0: Josh. Feast for Odin. Yes. Wow, okay, okay.
1: Number 12, yes, it's four to three. Plasma Anger. Josh. Blood Rage. It's Blood Rage. It's blood yep. rage. Oh, all tied one. up now. Four to four. This one here, I had to uh, do a little tampering with the thesaurus thing here. So. Oh, no. But... Trust me, it, it'll all make sense here. Mayors of puddles wide. Josh,
2: lords of water deep.
0: That is correct. Wow, well done, Josh. That was amazing.
2: <laughs> puddles wide sounds like a three-year-old's D and D. Like we up, have I two
0: more,
1: was two up, more here. Nothing. <laughs> Past the nearest star. Josh, oh, no. beyond, as you Josh, raise your hand very carefully, oh! it is beyond the sun. God! Six to four, dude, we're down I'm, to the last one here. Dude,
0: I like to think of a smart person. You're like, past the nearest star, and it was like, something about the moon. <laughs> what What game has the moon in it? Okay, last one. Josh, it's six to four. Josh is going to get the win. This one's just to feel better about myself. All right.
1: Okay. I
2: want to crush your spirits.
1: Coupon for passage. Patrick, ticket to ride. There you go,
0: Josh. Well done. That's <sighs> Scott. That was fun.
1: Great game. Okay, I have one more. This one's just for fun. No, no
0: sons. Uh, no, no sons. Planets. Josh, something planets.
2: <laughs> this, this is probably not it. But I said, don't wake daddy.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: okay. okay. No, no. Suns as in in
1: S-U-N-S. S-U-N-S. Okay. So
0: (laughs) no, 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 suns. Something star. Forbidden stars.
1: There you go. Yep, yep. That's (laughs) what it was. I was really happy with that one. Yeah, good one. Good one, Sky. But yes, congratulations, Josh. We have a nice party to get for you, uh, Patrick, of a year's supply of turtle wax. As
0: soon as I find where you can buy turtle wax. I'll Amazon it to your house.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I need need turtle wax.
0: Gentlemen, as we do at the end of every episode, we're going to go over how we leveled up since we last spoke, starting with our guest.
2: This is something I'm really excited for. I am starting basically a training regiment for myself in order to compete for... The OP or USA Opolis Road to Gen Con for Disney Sorcerers Arena Epic Alliances. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the podcast. Basically, they're holding tournaments around uh the country in order for people to play Disney Sorcerer's Arena, which is like a two-player skirmish game. And the winners of those tournaments will be invited to Gen Con to compete for a nationals where there's a ten thousand dollars worth of grand prizes Ooh. stuff. Oh wow. So I love Sorcerer's Arena. I've been playing it for a while. I have all the expansions and I'm like, you know what? I could probably do this and a free, t- even if I just win in my little area, my little hometown, because the one of the very few places that is holding this tournament is my FLGS, Cape Fear Games. So mm-hmm. my, I'm hoping I can go there and get a free ticket to Gen Con and also mm-hmm. maybe win a little bit of cash along the way. So I'm starting a training regiment where I'm going to be playing with my, Playing with my wife probably a couple times a week, playing this game, trying to figure out what combinations I like, and hopefully meeting some people who also play this game in my game store. We're going to start training with each other to try to, you know, get ready for this. And so I'm hoping by April's time you will see me at Gen Con in glorious victory riding upon the USA chariot, waving my hand to the crowd as I enter in. But, uh, Boy, that would that be is...
0: something. Good luck. Good luck with that.
2: Yes, that's awesome. Here's hoping. <laughs>
0: So I got a simple one, board game related. My sister got my daughter Ticket to Ride First Journey for Christmas. And Sarah, who, as I told you, Scott, she passed out at dinner time. She was snoring, right? We were over there on New Year's Day, and we took over Ticket to Ride First Journey, and we got to sit and play it. And my daughter's not a gamer. She's almost eight, and I haven't tried more complicated games. And Ticket to Ride First Journey, you know what? I thought, this is going to be hard for her. She has some vision problems. Um, So, it you know, some of the print might have been a little bit small. Some of the things on the board might have been a little more difficult for her to see, but she was able to see it, and she was able to play it. She would take her turn, and, like, I would purposefully talk out loud on my turns. What do you guys giggling <sighs> about? You're both muted. This is not fun. This is not Okay. I'm going to spend uh, eight hours editing this. Uh, I do all the work behind the scenes. Just, just check the Google Doc. <laughs> okay. I apparently typed TTR Fist Journey. So you guys are thinking that my uh, my level up was going to have something to do with Fist Journey. I didn't this... know
1: if Chicken to Ride just went like
2: Mortal Kombat or something here.
0: I thought it was much darker than that. I clearly have a much dirtier mind uh, than you guys. It was a do.
2: slow reveal because I saw, I was like, what the heck is Scott laughing at right now? And I, opened the booth, know I see him typing in the Google Doc. Can I see it? <laughs> oh, we're,
0: geez, just gonna, we're just going to leave it, go at that, and go right to Scott. What you got?
1: All right. Well, mine is one that I've done before many, many times, but it's just my perfect way of starting off the new year. And that is my eighth annual polar bear plunge into the Mon river in Pittsburgh. The water was a nice refreshing 38 degrees, but it was just so much fun. You get to see these people, you pick out people that you see each and every year. And it's great seeing them. I always go down with a Superman shirt and a Superman cape on the number of pictures I got taken with people and everything else, it's just such a great atmosphere and such a great way to start off the new year. So that's how I leveled up. Well done, Scott. Right, And it's for a good cause, right? Yes, yes. It it goes to uh getting coats for kids who need warmth in the winter. So the whole tagline there is, we're freezing for a reason.
0: Hey, that's awesome. I like that. Hey, Adventurers. Thanks so much for joining us today. Listen, we got a meetup on January 22nd. If you're local to the Pittsburgh area, we're going to be at the vault behind the Westmoreland Mall from 2 to 8, January 22nd. Food's going to be available. I think we're going to get a discount from the owners. We're expecting somewhere in the vicinity of 60 gamers there. It's going to be a good time. Giveaways, free food. Make sure you're there. Tell a friend about Level Up. We were looking to grow in our third year. I don't know to what end. We don't monetize, but hey, the more downloads we get, it's like giving us a warm hug. So please do Tell a friend about Level Up, and stick around. A couple weeks from now, it's going to be Scott and I talking a little bit about Wonderland's War. Have a good one, guys. Take care, all. Peace out.
1: Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.